faith of Abraham, who was called the father of faith. And then we looked at Moses. And now we're looking at uh, some of the last people in the Old Testament. And we're finishing with ourselves. So hear these words. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and of Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouth of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong and of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. Wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The word of the Lord. His name was Eric Little. He was born in 1902 in China, the son of Scottish missionaries. At the age of five, he was sent back to Scotland to go to a school for the missionaries' children. And it was there it was discovered that Little had great athletic talent. He was a tremendous rugby player and would go on to represent uh, Scotland in rugby competitions around the world. But it was his running that attracted England the most. Little was one of the fastest men in Britain, and so he was selected to run the 100 and 4 by 100 for England in the Olympic Games in Paris in 1924. But a conflict arose when Little discovered that the preliminary heats for both races were on Sunday. A strict Sabbatarian, he believed that sports were not supposed to be played on God's day. And so he declared that he would not run and withdrew from the races. This created a firestorm of controversy in Britain as he was excoriated for putting God above country. It even went to the floor of Parliament where he was criticized, but Little would not back down. A spot, though, was found for Little to run in the 400-meter dash, a race in which he'd only had marginal success. But on the day of the race, Little shocked the world by taking two seconds off of his time and running and winning in world record time of 47.6 seconds, a record that was to hold for 12 years. He was now a hero in England. He was paraded through the streets of Edinburgh. What Little did was even more amazing because only a year and a half later, Eric Little was gone. See, Little had a vision for his life, a plan that he believed that God had marked out for him to follow his parents and be a missionary in China. And so Eric Little went to minister in obscurity to a group of people that knew nothing about his prowess and success. 
As time would go on in China, things would become more difficult as World War II approached. He had to send his wife and his two daughters uh, back to uh, Canada where she was from. He would never see them again. He was imprisoned in an internment camp under deplorable conditions in which he served and ministered to the people there as he grew increasingly sick. Doctors told him he was working himself to death and he needed to take it easy. But Little was sick. In fact, he had a brain tumor. And Little eventually died far away from his family, from his native home, and from his Olympic medals. See, Eric Little had it all. He had the, the prowess, he had the ability, he had the fame, and yet he chose to supposedly throw it away to run the race that he believed God had for him. You know, our lives are like a race, says the Bible. We only have one race to run, and it's our race. The question we have to ask today is, how do we find it? How do we find it amidst all the counterfeit races that are out there? And the second question we also have to ask is, if we do find it, how do we find the strength to run it well? How do we not settle? How do we not look back upon our life and realize that maybe we made a living, but we didn't truly make a life? The answer, according to this passage, is faith. Faith is how we run the race that God has for us, looking for Him for the strength to run it. A race run for self by the power of self will only lead to mediocrity. But a race run for God through Christ will lead us to glory. Well, how do we run this race? This passage gives us three hints. The first thing we must do is we must look to the past for encouragement of those who have run before us. We must look to the past, and then we must look to the present to focus on the race that we have to run. We must look to the past, and then we must look to the present. But finally, we must look to the person who gives us the power to run the race well. Well, let's look at these three points. Number one, we must look to the past for encouragement. Look at verse 32. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, these great men who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, stopped the mouth of lions, escaped the edge of the sword. Women received back their dead by resurrection. You're familiar with these stories, these stories of these biblical greats that you heard as a child. David, the shepherd boy, who with a stone threw it and slung and killed Goliath, the great monster. Daniel, who refused to worship the uh, idol of King Nebuchadnezzar and so was thrown into the den of the lions and yet managed to emerge unscathed. Gideon, the man who with 300 people defeated an army of 100,000. And we admire them and we look to them and we have to ask the question, what was their secret? How were they able to do such great things? The answer is they embraced God's plan by faith. See, when you look at all of their stories, none of them were looking for greatness. None of them were maybe even looking for God, but their lives intersected with God's plans. And they had a crisis of belief. Remember David, he was just taking some food to his brothers on the, uh, at the battle line. And he heard this voice, Goliath, saying, Who, you know, I defy the armies of Israel. Who will fight against me? And David realized in his heart of hearts that God was calling him to do something. Now David could have turned away. 
could have stepped back into obscurity. No one was expecting him to do this. He could have lived for himself. I mean, after all, there were no guarantees. He was just a shepherd boy with a couple of stones bringing some bread to his brothers. But David stepped out. He embraced God's plan that he had for him. And as a result, he received God's power. Look at verse 34, where we hear that all of these people were made strong out of weakness. They were ordinary people. People just like you and me. Frankly, some of them were pretty big screw-ups. Anybody read the story of Samson? That guy was a mess. His life was an absolute mess. David, great David, was an adulterer and a murderer. They were ordinary people who grasped their weakness and embraced God's plan. The result was they experienced victory. But you know, there's another side to the story, as there always is. Verse 35 shows us another group of people. Some who were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and chains and imprisonment. They were sown, stoned, they were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went around about destitute and afflicted. Think about some of these people. Jeremiah, who was called by God to preach destruction to the people of Israel for their faithfulness. Jeremiah's message was essentially this. This land is going to be destroyed and you are going to be carried off into captivity because of your unfaithfulness. A message he preached again and again for over three decades. There's only two people in Jer Jeremiah's entire life who are shown as being converted by Jeremiah's ministry. He was hauled away into exile and tradition has it that he was stoned. What kind of life is that? How about Isaiah? He was called to preach uh, repentance, Judah, to repent from their sins because they were wicked. And the reward he received was the king uh, of Judea sawing him in half. We have to ask the question, what about these guys, the supposed failures in the eyes of the world? Were they any less faithful? Did they have any less power? No. Verse 39 tells us that all of them were commended for their faith. See, I think one of the reasons we're so afraid of embracing God's plan is because we don't want to end up like one of those guys. I'd love to be David, but I sure don't want to be Isaiah. But what was the difference between all of these people? The common similarity, all of them were committed to embracing the race that God had for them. See, they were running a different race than everybody else. That had a different finish line, different goals. They were running a race that was for God. See, most of us, we run the race for self. We're very familiar with the race for self. It's pretty simple. The first step is comfort. How can we live as comfortable a life as we can find? As comfortable a house, as comfortable a car, as comfortable a life situation. And how can we receive recognition for our life? We want to experience the adulation of the crowd, the respect of our peers in our comfortable situation. And then our final goal in this race of self is how long can we live? How long can we stay healthy and happy and enjoying life? But these guys had their eyes fixed on a different finish line. Verse 25, some were tortured, refusing to accept release so they might rise to a better life. In the Greek, literally, a better resurrection. 
See, he's countering against, we see that some of these women raised, uh, received their children back. But he, they're really, they're talking about a resuscitation there. What they're talking about, these people wanting, is a resurrection, a life of immortality. A life that has the applause of God. And so they refused to play by the rules of this world because they wanted a better life, a better resurrection. The reason the world was not worthy of them is because they were not living for this world. Eric Little embraced this race with different rules and a different finish line. And so he received power. As people were interviewed in the intern, uh, internment camp, one of them said of Little, he was without a doubt the most respected and loved person in the camp. We never saw him criticized even once. These people who have gone before us, they serve as witnesses for us. Literally in the Greek, martyrian, from where we get the word martyrs. See, they're not witnessing us. We're witnessing them and their lives and how they live. One day, you and I will bear witness of our own life to those who come after us. And so the question is, what is the witness we want to give to the world? Have you and I recognized that we too are called to run a different race? To embrace God's race. The question we have to ask ourselves today is, where is your finish line? Here's how you can tell. It goes something like this. Fill in the blank. When I blank, then I will have run a good race. When I do blank, then I will have done a good race. When I have blank, then I will have run a good race. Perhaps you're a mother and you're devoted to your children, but you put your children in that blank. When my children are successful, when they've grown up, when they've done well in school, when they've completed all the extracurricular activities, when they've gone to the right college, when they've married the right person and gotten the right job, then I will have run a good race. But will you? What happens when your child gets cancer? We have a friend of ours right now, their daughter is dying of cancer. There's absolutely nothing that the mom can do about it. What happens when your child has a learning disability and you spend hours with them at school and despite that, they're a C, D student at best? What happens when your son comes home with a punk rocker and a heavy metal band for a girlfriend? Will you achieve success in that way? The message I'm trying to communicate to you is that we must not settle for a counterfeit race. The race that we want to run leads to our comfort, but the race God wants us to run leads to our glory. And so what must we do? Embrace the race that God has for us, that has a different finish line, that is evaluated by different standards that treats victory and success in this world as imposters. Is it easy? Absolutely not. But if you do, you will receive God's glory and God's power. So we must look to the past, but this brings me to my second point, that we must look to the present and focus on the race that God has for each one of us. Look at verse 12, uh, chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set for us. 
See, there's a race that's marked out for each one of us. It's your own special race, your own special plan that God has for you. Where does it lead? I don't know. It may lead to glory. It may lead to difficulty. It probably leads to both in your lifetime. But the scripture is telling us that we must run with same, the same intensity as those who have run before us. See that word, let us also run. The writer here is using athletic imagery when he refers to life as a race. In Greek, the word uh, race is actually agon, from where we get the word agony. In the ancient Olympics, in the pentathlon, there were five different events. And the first event was the agon. It was the race. It was the only event of endurance in the pentathlon. And so people were called to endure the agon. The question was, how bad do you want it? And so people had to, in order to run the race, they would lay aside everything that hindered. The runners would literally strip down naked so they would have nothing that would entangle them. You ever run in a toga? It doesn't, it doesn't work well. I'm not, I'm not saying I've run in a toga. I just know it doesn't work well, okay? So they would lay aside everything that hindered. And I'm very familiar with this, having run five marathons. I was very fussy about what I wear, wore because I didn't want anything to uh, weight me down. I ran my first marathon in a cotton t-shirt, okay? I ran my last one in one of those technical gears, okay? It's night and day. Let's lay aside. See, the writer is saying that if you want to run this race, this agony, you've got to focus on it. And you've got to get rid of the things that hinder. What may be hindering you from running the race? You may want to run this race, but if you're so addicted to the television that you spend five hours in front of it, frittering away your life, this runner is saying, this person is saying, it's got to go. If you want to run the race, but you're so a prisoner of the opinions of others, the, the writer is saying, it's got to go. If you want to run the race, but at the end of the day, your bank account is sacrosanct, and it is first and foremost in your life, the writer is saying, it's got to go. Let us lay aside everything that weighs us down. Am I saying that you have to give up those things? No, but I'm not saying you don't. What I'm saying is you've got to travel light if you want to run this race. We must lay aside everything that weighs and the sin which clings so closely. Using an analogy of something when you're running that would trip us up, that would make you fall. It's talking about sin, not sins, but sin, anything that is contrary to God's word. See, one of the great things about this race of faith is that God has given us a training manual, a manner in which we are to run the race. You see, sin tells us to do the exact opposite in running this race. God says, be faithful. But sin says, be faithful, faithless. God says, honor the Lord in His Word. But sin says, honor yourself. Sin is like taking sugar and pouring it in the gas tank of a Ferrari. If we want to run God's race, we have to do it in God's way. But some of us may say, I want to run God's race, but I want to do it my way. It's not the way it works. It's like trying to run a marathon with shackles on your ankles. You're going to have to travel light. But why, Lord? 
Why do you demand so much of me? Why do you ask for so many things? The answer is because God says, I will be your portion. I will be your strength. I will be your treasure. I will be your resource. I am the goal worth giving up all for. And if you do that, you will find what you are looking for in me. But you have to focus. You know, it's interesting if you've ever participated in a marathon. I've run the Marine Corps three different times. And when you start in the Marine Corps, you're far away from kind of the crowds and all of the stuff that's going on. And something happens when you're standing in front of a race of 26 miles. And if you're serious about it, you're trying for a personal best. I remember seeing this for the first time. What happens is everybody's drank a lot of water. Okay? Vicki knows exactly where I'm going with this. They drank a lot of water. Okay? And they're ready to run, but there's a problem. They have to pee. <laughs> and there are no porta potties anywhere. So do you know what they do? The guys just go to the side and they go to the bathroom right there. But it's not just the guys. The gals, the smart ones, they bring a trash bag and they cut the bottom and they use it kind of as a skirt and they just go right then and there because they have to get rid of anything that's going to slow them down. Now here's something that's interesting. In, in, in the marathons I've run, I've never seen anyone do this. Hey, you can't do that. Stop doing that. That's illegal. That's against the law. You can't do that. You know the reason they don't do that? Is because everybody is focused on the race at hand. And all of these creature comforts go out the window because the agon is about to start. And this is what we have to be about. If we want to run, we have to get serious. See, if you go to a marathon, there's a lot of people at a marathon. Sometimes 50,000 people at a marathon. But the truth of the matter is only 10,000 people are running it. Most of the people are spectators. How can you tell the difference between a spectator and a runner? The spectator is the guy in the sweatshirt with the jeans and a chili dog and a beer. Okay? He's, he's over there texting on his iPhone. And then you see her running by in a racing singlet, and she's sweating. She's not carrying anything. She's focused. She's not chatting. She's talking. She's intent on where she's going. Sometimes with Christianity, we confuse spectating with running the race. See, we've forgotten that Christianity is not a philosophy. It's a way of life. It's a commitment to the race, embracing the race that God has for us. And so we have to get light. What's got to go in your life? I'll do anything for the Lord as long as I get to live in this five-bedroom house in this neighborhood. I'll go anywhere, Lord, but I'm taking this thing with me. Anybody ever tried to carry a five-bedroom house? It's going to slow you down. Lord, I'll follow you anywhere you call me to, but I need to be well-respected. I need to be well-thought-of by other people. It's not going to work. Maybe you've been running along this race and you've picked up some baggage, some bitterness you have in your heart about things that God's called you to do, and you're frustrated. Where's the end of this race? It's got to go. It's got to travel. We've got to travel light. The Bible says to cast it aside. Literally, the same word in the Greek is taking off a shirt and throwing it to the side. We've got to fling it off. And the sin that so easily entangles. What's got to go in my life? 
that's wrapping me up in chains and throwing me to the ground. Maybe the truth of the matter is I'm just greedy. I'm always thinking about my, my, uh, my life, my financial life. I'm always thinking about success. There's no time for thinking about God. Maybe it's sexual sin. Maybe you've been wrapped up by the sin of pornography. Maybe you've been wrapped up by these things that wrap around you until there's no space or breath for anything else. It's got to go. We've got to fling it off. If we want to be focused on the race that we have for us today, we need to run it with the same intensity as those who have run before. This brings me to my last point, that we must look to the person who gives us the power to run the race well. I want to talk to you about a guy named Oscar Pistorius. Anybody heard about him? I think we may have a slide up here again. Oscar Pistorius is a famous runner. He runs for the South African uh, 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 team. He's run many races. They call him the Blade Runner. I don't know if you've heard about him. He's one of the, fa the fastest men in the world, certainly one of the fastest men in Africa. He will hopefully be competing in the Olympics in London next year. But there's something very interesting about Oscar Pistorius. He has no legs. Oscar Pistorius, when he was born, did not, uh, was not born with the main bone in his leg from the knee down. And so doctors said that, uh, advised them to amputate both of his legs from the knee down. And they went ahead and did that. See, Oscar had a heart to run the race, but he didn't have the ability. Till a company named Osur in Iceland came along. They manufactured these high-tech carbon prosthetics called the cheetahs. And they fitted Oscar with these particular blades. And Oscar, who would have been a world-class athlete, was able to take and run on these blades and run at the speed he would have been able to run if he was able-bodied. See, we may want to run the race, but we lack the means. It's easy for me to get up here and say, hey, stop being greedy. Hey, stop going to that computer. Stop going to that refrigerator. Reform your life. We need power, my friends, to run the race marked out for us. And so we must do what the passage tells us in verse, 20, uh, verse 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. See, the finish line is far, but God's given us more than a promise. God's given us a person. Jesus, who is the founder of our faith, the one who sets us on the race, and the perfecter, the one who allows us to finish the race. See, we must fix our eyes on Jesus. And notice it doesn't say Jesus Christ, because he's emphasizing Jesus' humanity. Because the reason Jesus can help us to run the race is because he's already run the race before us and for us. See, for the joy set before him, Jesus had his own agon to run, didn't he? The agony to the cross in which he ran. But there were no, cheer, there were no crowds to cheer Jesus as he ran the race marked out for him. In fact, he only endured the scorn of people. His disciples deserting him. The crowds chanting, crucify. And yet Jesus ran on and on and on. All the way to death itself. And through death. Why? For the joy set before him. 
the opportunity to liberate the captives who would run after him. The ability to go back and bring his people along in this race of faith. Jesus' sacrifice was accepted because he was raised from the dead and is seated, as it says, at the right hand of the throne of God, the crowning of the laurel. And as such, he can be the founder and perfecter of our faith as well. Where does the power come from to run the race of faith? We need the power of Christ because we cannot run this race on our own. And so we must fix our eyes on Jesus. When Ian Charleston, who was called to play Eric Little in the 1981 Academy Award winner Chariots of Fire, was trying to run like Eric Little, he had a very, very interesting, even ugly running style. Eric Little, when he would run, would run in a very ungainly way, and he would run with his head back as if he was looking up. Charleston finally figured out how he was going to run in this way because he was afraid to run this way. He said in acting school, we had this thing, it was, it was called a trust fall. And what you would do, different trust assignments where you would trust other people, you would run toward a wall and you would trust people to stop you. He realized that what Eric Little was doing was as he was running this race of faith, his eyes were on God, on faith to help him run the race. Someone asked Eric after he won that race how he did it. He said, for the first 200 meters, I ran with all my heart. And for the last 200 meters, I ran with God's help, and I ran even faster. A race run for self, by the power of self, will lead us only to mediocrity. But a race run for God, by the power of God, will lead to glory. Look to the past for encouragement. Look to the present and get focused. And look to the person, Jesus, who will help you to run 